Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for something bigger than ourselves and is passionate to proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus. This fall, we are opening up the letter of 1 John. We believe it is a timely book in the life of the church. John is writing to a church that is divided over theological differences and confusion about how to follow Jesus in the midst of division. John's answer is love. God's love for us is immeasurable, and so our love for one another should be as well. It's a call to unity and care for one another in the midst of division. We're glad that you've joined us for this series. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings at 9 and 10.30 a.m. I wanted to check in and see how you Broncos fans are doing this year. It's been kind of, uh, people are throwing stuff at me. Someone was like, boo, we want Larry in first service. Um, As a Cowboys fan, I just want to check in and make sure you're doing all right. Um, Because I can empathize. Uh, I've had seasons like you all are, not not this year, but um, previously I know what it's like to have a team that's three and four and probably heading further down. Um, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll lay off, I'll lay off. All right, I know. Like, Someone just talk about Jesus. Okay, most, most interaction I've ever had from Waterstone here. <laughs> no amens about Jesus, but Broncos, oh, we got to defend them. All right, so it actually does have a point. I'm not just trying to rib or, or be a mean person. Um, but the, the truth is, sports are so, I mean, everything in sports is the world of what have you done for me lately, right? So like when your team is struggling, it is so much harder harder to be invested in that team. I know the, the seasons where the Cowboys go three and 13, I, I couldn't even tell you what their schedule is by the end of the year, right? Like, I just don't care. Like, I'll check in next year and see if they're any better. It's much harder to root for a team that is three and four than a team that is five and one. Like the Cowboys, sorry, all right, last one, last one. I promise, I promise, I promise, probably, last one. No, but it it is, it's harder. When a team is about, is Super Bowl bound, you can't find anyone in the city that isn't excited to at least some degree, right? But when a team is struggling, even the most diehard fans have trouble keeping up and staying invested and staying staying a fan and, and caring. And here's the reality. There are so many different areas of life where that plays out, where, where what have you done for me lately dictates how much we're invested in something, how much we love something, how much we can. We do that with people even, right? Like if someone hurts us, if someone lets us down, then, then we might be a, tempted to be a little less invested in them, love them a little less. Our love is often conditional for what things have done for us lately. Now, the truth is that I think so many of us carry that weight into our relationship with God. That when we think of God, we think God looks at us and thinks, what have you done for me lately? That God's love for us is dependent on how well we're performing. God's a fan of us as long as we're performing the way that he tells us we have to. I think so many of us live under this weight, this belief that God loves me on my good days and on my bad days when I'm struggling, his love is less. And so we live under the weight and burden of our sin and this idea that we have to perform a certain way in order to experience God's love in our lives. And it hangs us up and it keeps us from experiencing the love that God has for us. 
And most of us, we live in this tension of understanding, at least cognitively, that, that God loves us unconditionally, and yet we understand that there are some sort of expectations that go along with that love, that, that if we are the children of God, then we're expected to live and act certain ways. But it's the space in between those two things, God's immeasurable love for us and, and the expectations he has for us, where we're not quite sure what to do. I mean, how much of this love do I experience if I'm living or stuck in sin? And what we find in this passage of 1 John today, this is the heart and John's heart laid bare for his people. This is John trying, these are the passages about God's immeasurable love. And remember, John is writing to a context, to a group of people who are experiencing division, they're experiencing strife, they're experiencing the falling apart of their community. There are people who are, are trying to lead people astray and creating division and confusion. Last week, we looked about how a lot of that is revolving around the person and work of Jesus. It's a, a theological deception. But what we come to today is that these people are also leading people astray ethically, it's not just theology that's causing division, it's also ethics. And so John is trying to step into this moment and say, for the people of God, there are expectations. You see, the people who are writing against John, who are, who are pushing back against him, were saying, you can do whatever you want with your body. You can live however you want. How you treat other people has no impact on your relationship with God. And John is writing to try to confront that and say, no, what you do with your body, how you live, how you act does show evidence of your relationship with God. But he has to do that in such a way where people don't fall back into legalism or performance-based religion of expectations of how they meet God's standards. And so in this space, John writes to us writes to these churches of God's immeasurable love that invites us to be his children and yet inspires us to live righteous lives. So that's where we're going today. That's the two main ideas that we're going to be wrestling through that, that John is trying to present to us. And it, it begins in 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Well, actually, let me pray for us before we get there. I think it's good to pray. Always good to pray. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, uh, I believe that, that so many of us do live with this weight, with this burden of, of expectation, of performance, of our relationship being dependent on what we have done for you lately. God, I ask today that the words of John, the beloved disciple, the one who knew Jesus intimately, who walked with Jesus, who, who was said to have such a firm grasp of your love, that he was called the apostle of love. I pray that his words, his understanding, his truth would seep deep into our souls. That we would understand the beauty, the grace, the mercy of what it means that we are called children of God. God, I pray from that reality, from a deep understanding of what you have done for us, that we would be inspired to live more fully for you, that it would transform us, that it would purify us, that it would change us both individually and as a community. God, may the love that you have for us rain down on this place. May the Holy Spirit sit with us, be with us, convict us, encourage us in the way of Jesus so that we can know your love and live for you more fully today. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. So 
diving in to 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, he shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. So John starts out this section of of expectations that God has for us, ethics that God has for us, by talking about the love of God. And and I I wish that we could get into all of the nitty-gritty of the language he uses, but what you need to know, what you need to understand is this is incredibly emotive language that John is using. This is not just some intellectual knowledge he's trying to dispense, but he is trying to, to tell people from the deepest part of who he is. He is trying to convict, trying to convey, trying to cause these people to remember God's love that he has for them. And we lose some of that in in this translation, but this idea of great love, it's such a weak word, great love. What is great love? John, it's a really hard word to translate. This phrase John is using is actually, of what country is this? Which is a weird phrase, but what John is saying is that this love is so great, it's so incomprehensible, it feels foreign to us. It's like nothing we've ever experienced before. The love of God is like it's from a completely different place, a completely different plane of existence. Where does it even come from? We have not experienced this love. We cannot experience this love anywhere in the world. That is the depth of God's love for us, the immeasurable love that he has. And then he goes on and he says that that the Father has lavished this great love on us. Again, it's emotive language. Someone that was talking about this this week is like, is that like when when young teenagers are kind of in love with each other and they just can't stop touching each other and telling each other how much they love each other and they're all affirmations? No, that doesn't even come close to what is happening in this passage. What John is saying is that this love is a great gift of immeasurable value and worth. That, that, that God has given it to us, that he has re, we have received it in payment. It's what the idea is, is if someone has won the lottery and is like, here you go, you can have all the winnings. It's this immeasurable worth that we cannot begin to comprehend or measure. That is the love that John says God has for his children. And again, we miss it, but when he says see, what he's really saying is behold, He's saying, can you even comprehend? John is writing to these people. He's writing to us. And he's saying, can you even begin to imagine? Can you even begin to comprehend what it means that we are called God's children? Can you even understand the kind of love that he has for us? This immeasurable love that has no weight, has no no measure, has no value, has no no element to it that, that we could even begin to comprehend that it is beyond our understanding. That is the kind of love God has for his children, that he should call us his children. Can you believe it? Because the truth is, most of us can't. Most of us can't believe that that kind of love, that, that God would invite us to be his children. 
See, we have this idea of performance-based love that, that comes our way as long as we do the things that we're supposed to do. And there's this interesting phrase that, that it's really abstract and a, and a little bit hard to get at. But G, John says that, that now we are the children of God, but what we will be has not yet been made known. So even now in this life, we are the children of God. What our relationship with God will be like, who we will be like in the next life has not been made fully known to us. But what we do know is that when Christ appears, when we are with him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That one day we will be in relationship with God, perfect unity with Jesus and see him face to face. That all the sin we have in this life will fall away in the next life and we will experience perfect harmony and unity with the God of the universe. But what he is saying is that we are children now so even though in the next life, we will be less sinful than we are now, we are no more secure in the next life than we are now in this moment, sinners though we are. John is saying that our present reality, our security is firmly in the Father's grasp. That there is nothing we can do in this life to earn God's favor or love. God's love has invited us to be his children. And what does it mean that, that we are his children? It means that God's love will never give up on us. It will never run out on us that we cannot quench or extinguish or stop the love of God. That there's nothing any of us can do in this life to separate us from the love of the Father. That his love for us is not based on what we have done or who we are, but solely on what he has done, and that is claim us as his children, his possession, his. Brennan Manning, who is one of my, my favorite authors, uh, is someone who deeply, deeply struggled in his life. He made a ton of poor choices. Most of his life was spent struggling with alcoholism. But he is one of the people that I think ha has the clearest understanding. He, he has the most, um, what I would say, functional view of God's love because he experienced the depths of darkness. And when you read his works, you see that the love of God has touched him in the hardest parts of life. But this is what he says in one of his books about the love of God that he has for us. Do you believe that the God of Jesus loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity? that he loves you in the morning sun and evening rain, that he loves you when your intellect denies it, your emotions refuse it, your whole being rejects it. Do you believe that God loves you without condition or reservation and loves you this moment as you are and not as you should be? See, I would argue that, that most of us don't believe that. 
that most of us spend our lives trying to prove, trying to earn, trying to perform our way into experiencing God's love. I think what many of us do is, is we inadvertently try to measure God's immeasurable love. And we find these ways to, to try to come up with measurements to show us that, oh yeah, God only loves me this much because of, of these reasons. And see, one of those for me is comparison. That, that when I compare my life to other people, it, it's easy for me to measure the love God has for me. God must love these people more than me because of how their life looks than how my life looks. It's easy to play the comparison game and use that to measure the love that God has for us. I mean, I have a friend, I, I, you probably have these friends too, where no matter what happens in their life, no matter how you shake their life, it just always feels like all the pieces fall into place exactly how they planned it. And it just feels like nothing ever goes wrong. It just feels like we, we can't ever really get them rattled or shaken. I mean, this guy, great friend, but, but he has a, a, an incredible job, makes a ton of money, has, has a home in the mountains. He drives a nice new forerunner car, got a great family. He, he just feels like he wins the lottery like every couple of years. Not literally, but, but like, for instance, he, he's, a, he's a person who likes to hunt and fish. And I, I love those things. And, and the tags that this guy pulls, I don't understand how someone gets the best tags year after year after year after year, but he always does. I mean, he literally wins the lottery. He, he lives at a pace of life that I envy. And I, I'm just like, how do you get to that place? I mean, I look at my life, and, and most of the time, if I can make it through with like how one of seven things going wrong, I, I think I'm doing great. Like if my dog doesn't go to the vet, if my daughter doesn't go to the hospital, if I don't have to like step on Elmo in the middle of the night, as I talked about a few weeks ago, the, the check engine light on my car doesn't come on, the sink doesn't get clogged, and the dishing washer doesn't get broken, then, then, then that's a great week. And I'm like, cool, made it through, like we're doing all right right? And the truth is, like, I, I love my life. I, I feel so grateful for the things that God has given me. I love, I count it as a privilege of what I get to do. I, I love my old beat-up truck. Like, like it, it's not actually about the comparison. I'm sure my friend's life is not as good as it looks like from the outside. But when we begin comparing ourselves to other people, it is easy to measure the love of God in our lives and say, God must love that. They must just be a better person and have it together and all figured out. And so God is blessing them because of how they're living. I need to get on top of my stuff to have that. And yet what John is saying is that this love of God is a free gift. It's something that, that he has given to all of his children, that, that not some get it more than others, and not that some experience it more deeply than others. He's saying it is free and available to all, and that it is of immeasurable value and worth, that we don't need to spend our time. If you want to experience the love of God more deeply, if you are in a place where you feel spiritually dry, eliminate comparison from your life and express gratitude for the ways you have seen God's love. And you will see that love flourish. You will see the ways that God has lavished his love upon you. But for many of us, we don't only measure God's love by comparing ourselves to other people. We also measure God's love through our circumstances. And when we see ourselves struggling, when we go through hard times, it's really difficult for us not to think that that is evidence, that that is a measurement of how deeply or shallowly God loves us. 
that when we don't get the job we were hoping for, when we lose our job, when someone we love rejects us, when, when someone we love passes away, when we experience the deeply broken parts of this world, when we are sick, when, when we hear scary words like cancer, when we go through seasons of depression or anxiety, it is so difficult not to think that those spaces are evidence of how deeply God loves us or how little he loves us. And the truth is, I don't know why some of you are going through deeply, deeply difficult and broken seasons. I, I don't know why some of you seem to have it harder than others and, and experience more darkness and brokenness in this world than others. But I do know that that has no bearing, no weight on God's love for you. Your circumstances are not evidence in any way, shape, or form of God's love for you. In fact, Scripture affirms over and over and over again that our circumstances are not evidence of God's love for us, but, but that it is in our circumstances that we see God's love for us, that nothing we go through in this world could ever separate us from the love of God that we have. Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says, who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our circumstances are not evidence that God has abandoned us. The whole point of Jesus is that God does not abandon us in our circumstances, but enters into our circumstances so that we are not alone in them. Nothing you are going through right now is separating you from the love of God. I'm not saying that it doesn't feel that way. I'm not saying that it's not hard. I'm not saying that there are moments where we can't question and doubt and wonder where God is. But what I am saying to you is that those things will never separate you from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. That God's immeasurable love cannot be measured by our circumstances. For others of us, and probably I would argue for most of us, it's not just circumstances or, or, or comparison that keep us from, from experiencing the love of God or, or the ways that we try to measure God's love. But for many of us, it comes down to a, a simple way we view ourselves. It's the condemnation that we feel about ourselves. That, that we think... When we look at ourselves and when we see ourselves, we are, are, are too ugly, too broken, too sinful to ever be loved by God. That, that, that we think that it, it, we can't have grace for ourselves. How could God ever have grace for us? I mean, some of us have so much trouble loving ourselves that we cannot comprehend that God would ever love us. 
We think our sin and our brokenness is too much, that God's love is not enough for those things, that God's love is not enough for our addictions, that God's love is not enough for our brokenness, for our failures, for our weakness. It's not enough for for our drunkenness. It's not enough for our our sexuality. It's not enough for, for our struggles and the different ways we treat people. I think God's love is not enough. And so we condemn ourselves. There's so many beautiful stories in Scripture of people who are condemned, who are brought before Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. That though the world condemns you, though you condemn yourself, I don't condemn you. Again, in Romans, Paul says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We hear that no condemnation and we think, well, there's probably a little bit. Like, God probably condemns me just a little bit. How could he not? But I I just want to tell you that the Greek is really clear. It's no, it's none, it's zero, it's zilch, it's nada, not some. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God does not condemn you, why would you condemn yourself? But it's how we measure God's love. It gets back to this idea of performance-based religion that we have to be a certain way and do certain things in order for God to love us. And it is so important It is crucially important that we understand the depth of love that God has for us because what John is about to say in his next breath will crush us if we don't understand this depth of God's love, this immeasurable love that he has given to us, that he has lavished upon us. Because what John goes on to say feels a lot like performance. Listen to this in verse four. It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he, Jesus, appeared so that we might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Therefore, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. You got to stop for a moment and say, okay, that sounds a lot like legalism. That sounds a lot like performance-based religion. That sounds a lot like if I don't do certain things or act certain ways, then I don't know Jesus and I can't be a child of God. And you think back to earlier in this book where he says that that we can't say that we're without sin. If we claim that we don't have sin, we're liars and God is a liar. But now he's saying that, 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 that we can't have sin in our life. So which is it? And you see, it's this tension that we live with, that, that, that we are called children of God, that we have been accepted by God, and yet there seems to be some sort of expectation of how we should live. And John even raises the stakes further than that. He even goes farther in how he talks about how we should live. He goes on in in verse 7 and he says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Remember, certain people were trying to lead them astray ethically and about their morality. He says, The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. The reason the Son of God appears was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they, are, because they have been born of God. 
This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. This is the tension that we feel. This is why we struggle to believe that God loves us because it feels like we have to do certain things and live a certain way in order to be accepted by God. And and the line feels so blurry between those two realities. And I think it's so important for us to know and understand that yes, there are expectations for how God's people live. Five times in this passage, John says that we should not continue sinning. But he's not talking about performance. He's talking about resemblance. He's not talking about how we perform. He's talking about what we resemble. Do we look like the children of God? Do we look like someone who has experienced the love of God? Because when God's love touches us, it changes us. It transforms us. It shapes us. It purifies us. And so we will begin to resemble that God is our father and that we are not children of the devil. It's resemblance, not performance. My daughter, she's two, and, and for most of her life, the first two years of her life, the number of people who come up to, to, to me or my wife and tell her that she looks just like us, that, that even the ways that she moves and little idiosyncrasies that she does, like, it, it resembles not just us, but even like great-grandparents who she's barely even met. It's like, wow, how did she? It's because she's in the family. It's because she's ours. It's in her DNA. She resembles her parents. John is saying that if we have experienced the love of God, if God has claimed us as his children, then we will resemble that reality. That the love of God will inspire us to live righteously. But it's also so important that we hear that that it's not an expectation for perfection. It's not an expectation that, that we just never sin again. Sin will always remain in us this side of heaven. It's so important to understand that that each of those five times, John says, do not continue sinning. That that the verb tense is one that's communicating an ongoing state of existence. That the children of God are not people who continually struggle with the same sins, who, who continually just do the same sins. It's not about perfection, it's it's about struggle. That the moment we just give up resistance, they're like, well, this is just who I am. This is just how I'm going to be. I'm just a bitter, mean, spiteful person. That's the moment we're on shaky ground. That, that we don't have permission to just live however we want or act however we want. So many of us, we have these, these things that, that we've struggled with our whole entire lives, and we struggle against them. And that is the evidence of what Christ has done in us. But the moment we say, well, I'm just an angry person. Nothing I can really do. That is where John is saying the line is drawn. It's not that that, that we will never struggle with those things, that we will never sin again, that even the habitual sins we struggle with may not plague us for our entire lives. But he is saying that the expectation for the children of God is that we struggle against it, that we don't just give ourselves over to that. But this idea that that, that we're to live righteously, that that God's love inspires us to live righteously, is not just about resisting sin. 
I think when we hear that term righteous, so many times we have this kind of connotation in our head of personal piety, that it's the list of should nots and the things that I'm not supposed to do. And so being a righteous person means I don't say four-letter words, or it means I don't drink too much, or I don't sleep with people who aren't my spouse. And there are those personal pious implications. There is an element of personal righteousness to what John is talking about, but it's so much more beyond that. This word righteous is, is often translated as justice. They're interchangeable. So there's a, a, a personal piety component to righteousness, but there's also a social responsibility that we as the people of God, how we love others is a part of whether or not we are righteous. And so how we treat the poor, John says at the end of the passage, it's not just the one who does what is right and just, but the one who loves his brothers and sisters. Again, John is talking about evidence of what has happened with us. When we have experienced the immeasurable love of God, we will love others immeasurably. But that is the sign that we are God's children. It's nothing that we have earned, but it is the proof of what has happened to us, of what God has done for us. And this idea of, of righteousness and, and social responsibility and, and personal piety, I think of how we often talk of sin as like stealing cookies. That there are certain things in the world that God has said you shouldn't touch or you shouldn't do or you shouldn't have, and we sneak them, and that's sin. And my daughter is really gifted at this. I mean, she, she loves stealing cookies. We've been making apple crisp, kind of leaning into fall together. And, and we have apple crisp. And she pushes over her stool, which she calls her stander, and tries to sneak the food that we've made together, these treats that we've said that, like, she can't have. And, and we think God has said there are certain things that we can't have or that we can't do or that we can't lean into that, that aren't okay for us. And sin is just sneaking them. And that's when we're not being righteous. And so to be righteous is to, to keep our hands out of the cookie jar. And, and there's truth to that. There, there's an element of what John is talking about that that is true. But it goes deeper and further than that. What John is also saying is that there are people in the world who don't even have access to cookies. That the, the people of God are people who see people who are oppressed or marginalized or experiencing injustice. And we care about those things. That, that we're not people who are just like, well, that's the way the world is. No big deal that we are engaged actively in the places of this world that are broken and not aligned to the will and heart of God. That we are people who share what God has given us. And again, it's not performance, it's evidence. The proof that we're God's children is not how much we quote the Bible. It's not about how much we pray. It's not about how many times we attend church, though those things are important. Again, it's not about the four-letter words we say or don't say or how many drinks we have, though again, those things have their place. John is saying that if we want to live righteous lives, if God's love is inspiring us and changing us, then we will love others how we have been loved saying that Christians, believers, followers of Jesus are not just known for their morality, but also their mercy. And again, if we don't understand God's love for us, then it is so easy to slip back into performance-based legalism where we think we earn God's love by doing things or not doing things or how we treat people. God is is not a person who just has a list of boxes that we are supposed to check 
in order to make sure that he is still a fan of us. What John is saying is he is anchoring these expectations, this this resemblance of God's children in God's love for us. That because God has loved us so immeasurably, so greatly, so incomprehensibly, that it would change us and mark us forever. That's why it's interesting in this passage, John says that, 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 that the world does not recognize us, that they don't know us because they did not know him. And oftentimes people think, oh, yep, that's persecution. It's not persecution. What he is saying is that people don't recognize us because this incomprehensible love that is so foreign to us, so unlike anything we have ever experienced before, not only characterizes Jesus and they don't understand it, but it characterizes us and they can't comprehend it. How would people love people that recklessly? That's the the intent behind that, that statement. And it is all anchored in the love of Jesus that we have been shown. And I've been wrestling and struggling all week of how do you just wrap up and how do you summarize the love of God that he has for us? I mean, if John says it's immeasurable and you can't even weigh it, you can't even comprehend where it comes from, how, what, what kind of story do you even tell to try to get people into that place? There's nothing There's no way that we can grasp and comprehend this. But people have tried throughout the centuries to to just convey this love of God. And there's an old hymn called The Love of God. And I'm not going to sing it to you, I promise, because if I did, everyone would get up and and run for those doors as quick as they could. But I want to read these words to you because I I think it gets just at, at the heart of this idea of God's immeasurable love. And I would encourage you, you may not feel comfortable with this, but to even close your eyes, let these words wash over you. Receive the love of God that is incomprehensible and immeasurable. The song states, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Do you believe that love? Do you believe that God has called you his child? Do you believe that God's love for you is immeasurable, that it cannot be contained? That is what John is trying to convince us from, and it is from that place, that understanding, that love, that we are called and inspired and motivated to love others. And so to close today, I just have two questions that I would encourage you to pray and to contemplate and to wrestle with and to think through. And they're just these two questions, one about God's love and one about our lives. What is preventing you from experiencing the great love that God has lavished on you? In what ways might you be allowing the sin in your life to persist? What what ways might you not be living out the righteousness that God has called us to? 
See, this love that God has for us is immeasurable. It cannot be counted, it cannot be weighed. As the song says, it would bleed the ocean dry. What is keeping you from believing that today? What is keeping you from living into the righteousness that God has called you to? I would invite you to pray. If you need someone to pray with, we have Stephen ministers available in the back of the room. They would love to pray with you through this. If there are circumstances in your life that you think are keeping you from the love of God, if the ways that you compare it, there may be a million reasons why you don't think God could love you as deeply as John says. Bring that to someone else. Let them in on that. I know this, God does not want anyone to leave this place today not having experienced, not having known, not having received this gift that he wants to lavish on us. Will you receive it? 